0: Turn to Genesis chapter 21 this morning. Genesis chapter 21. Now, before I get into the to the text, before I tell you where we're going or describe where we've been um, this morning, I'd like to go ahead and just read the text. Remember, the probably the most important thing I'm going to say today is right now, as we look at Scripture. Let us be reminded this is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired Word, uh, and it is the most important thing that we can hear. So, as we look at the text, I want you to listen for repetition. As you know, the narrator has patterns and purposes of what he does. And we're going to see God's work producing faith in the heart and life of Abraham and Sarah in three sections. So as we look at this in three sections today, I want you to look at the repetition in the first section. Um, That's key and crucial. There's something that you might not catch in the second section just because of a translation Um, an English translation thing, but I'll bring it out when we get there. And then finally, in the last section, you are going to see, I think, the key to the entire section uh, found in the last two verses. So see if you can pick up on those as we read the story. Let's let God, the Holy Spirit, the divine narrator, uh, help us understand his word because scripture is spiritually understood and you can understand it with the aid of his spirit. So let's read it today. And then I will jump in in the text and we'll preach three points briefly today. Let's look at the text. And the Lord, Yahweh, visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. Remember, Isaac means laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, laughter, when he was eight days old, and God had commanded as, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac, laughter, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, Isaac. And all who hear will laugh, Isaac, with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age? Second section. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac, laughter, was weaned. And Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing, scoffing, as it's translated... Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac, laughter, your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because of your seed. He is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it, to the, he gave it and the boy to Hagar, and he sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, or Beersheba and the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot, for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, third section, came to pass that at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will, deal, will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing to you, excuse me, who has done this thing, you did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant, and Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, or Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. May God add a portion of the reading, a blessing to the portion of the reading of his word this morning. And may we find understanding in its truths. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God, its power and its authority over our lives. I pray that you would help us to listen with understanding, with obedience and with response. And as we look at the text today, help us to see the truths that you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name, amen. So we've entitled this message, God's Promises Rooted in God's Nature. And as we see the theme of this text today, we're going to see that growing faith must be rooted in God's character. Growing faith must be rooted in God's character. Now, we finished our study this morning in Hebrews chapter 10 around the Lord's table. I mentioned casually that chapter 11 mentions the lives of the men and women who by faith exercising their faith, believe God, and like the father Abraham, it was accredited to them as righteousness. And so our faith must be faith that is rooted in God and his character, not in our circumstances, not in our direction, not in our will, not in our ways, but in God's ways. We learned that sobering lesson last week as we looked at chapter 20, following the height of Abraham's success, real genuine failure with Abimelech the first time he's mentioned. But today we're going to find that God's promises rooted in God's nature uh, come to us through growing faith. And so the truth that we will see today is this. Every believer must root their faith in God's character. In 2023, our world is full of faithful people full of people that demonstrate faith. It is estimated that there are over 1 billion people who claim them to be followers of Allah and the faith of Islam. It is estimated today that the second largest, uh, nearly 2 billion, claim to be followers of God in Protestant and Catholic faiths all across the globe. And of course, that includes the Christian cults and other denominations that may or may not preach the truth, but that is a broad statistic. And the other 6 billion are uh, either spatterings of Shintoism, nature worshipers, animal worshipers, animistic worship, Western ideology, or irreligious. And so there are a lot of humans on this planet, almost 9 billion, a little over 8 billion today. Every human has been granted by God the capacity to believe in someone and something. And indeed, the scripture tells us in Romans 1 that he created this universe to reflect his triune nature, and he created mankind in his image and stamped in man the conscience that God made in him. So that all men everywhere are without excuse and instead of worshiping the creator they worship the creature or the creation So that they don't recognize God as God, but rather indeed work in their own lives and work out their own works-based salvation in the creation they worship. So God would give them over to a mind of reprobation, a mind that is continually circulating back on themselves and their own sin and their own lusts and their own desires. So that James would describe it, sin when it gives birth or, or desire, when it is gives birth, brings forth sin or births sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So that death, Scripture would say, has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And indeed, Scripture would say, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. And that's all that all means. Each and every human on this planet is a sinner. But as I mentioned with statistics in the introduction, every human is also has the incredible capacity to have faith. But here's the point faith must be properly placed. You either or I either have faith in God's promises that are rooted in God's nature, or we have faith in the creation or the creature rather than the creator. Jesus said this, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there are that find it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Abraham was introduced to us way back in Genesis chapter 12 as the 20th in succession from the line of Adam through the line of Seth, through the line of Enoch, through the line of Noah, through the line of Shem, through Lamech, his father, and now Abraham becomes the father of faith, the one and only human that God covenanted with based on God's own character to bless Abraham and to fulfill the original Genesis promise that God would send Abraham a seed, and in the seed he would bless all the nations of the earth, that Abraham's descendants would be as multiple as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, and that blessing would come because Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him. It was imputed to him as righteousness. As we've walked through Genesis thus far, we've seen that Abraham's true faith in God and repentance from his sin, the former moon worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees is now a Yahweh worshiper, building altars all throughout Canaan, wherever he goes to the one true God. And here in the text, we find as the text ends, we find this man who has finally rooted his faith genuinely in the character and nature of God. Yes, Abraham is a man of faith, but God calls every man and woman today to be men and women whose faith is rooted in God's character as Abraham's was. So let's ask the question importantly today that you've already been thinking. How does the text show the growth of Abraham's rooted faith? And what can we learn from Abraham's example? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we're going to discover uh, in the text today, we're going to discover uh, three ways or three ways that that Abraham's faith progresses and how we can learn from Abraham's example. As I mentioned, broken up into the three sections of the text today. So last week, we our narrative pointed to an introspective contrast. As we looked at chapter 20, we noted that faith in God requires us to reject faith in self. And the tragedy of Abraham's uh, and Sarah's faith walk that had borne the consequences of, of misplaced faith early in their lives. You remember the, the promise God made to Abraham, and yet their scheming and manipulation their desire to see that promise fulfilled outside of its time caused a cr- incredible hurt and pain. Sarai, at the time, uh, comes to her husband, Abram, and determines, hey, uh, Abram, why don't we try to do this whole promise thing our way instead of God's way since it's not working so well? And she gives her her handmaiden, Hagar, and and Abram, instead of obeying God, instead of trusting God, falls into the pattern of recklessness that he had apparently started before he left Ur, before he left Haran with Terah and family. What was the pattern? The pattern was to, if I get into a tight spot, I'm going to rely on myself and not on God. I'm going to tell everybody that Sarai is my sister. After all, you know, she's you know, my father's daughter, but not my mother's daughter. So um, yeah, I'm going to tell everybody that because that'll keep me alive because God has commanded me to leave family and forsake my country and to wander into a country that's not my own. So I've got to watch my own back. I need to save my own skin. And Abram, as the head of his home, set a pattern of destruction and poor decision-making as he led his family in the wilderness. And those decisions came back to haunt him. Because his wife, following that pattern, uh, presents to her his handmaiden and enter destruction and devastation and human suffering. Hagar and Ishmael are the wake of poor decision-making and poor leadership. And so we find this happens again in chapter 20. You think Abraham has gotten to the the pinnacle and height of faith, and yet here he goes again. Abimelech confronts him. He's already had this failure in Egypt with the Pharaoh 30 years before. Now Sarah's 90, and he's still like, well, she's my sister because she's so hot. You're going to kill me. What? (laughs) I mean, again, doing things his way versus doing things God's way is sowing seeds of misplaced faith. And last week, we saw that. We were reminded that though God's righteous external uh, righteousness is externally applied to us, like Abraham, that solidifies our eternal relationship with God and our eternal destiny in heaven, we still have a responsibility to reject our natural, sinful, self-deceived schemes of life and respond in genuine faith to God in the midst of critical circumstances. Abraham failed in chapter 20. Instead of saying, okay, God... Um, you just visited me before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I literally just was called your friend. I'm the only human in Old Testament history to actually eat a meal with God in the flesh, pre-incarnate, before Jesus comes and eats lots of meals with lots of people. The only person in human history that ever eats with God in the Old Testament is Abraham. He has this special relationship, and he biffs. He drops the ball. He fails. He fails. Why? Because he, like you and I, he was walking by sight and not by faith. What did he see when he walked into uh, the stronghold of Gerar, into the strength of the capital city of the Philistine Empire? He saw imminent and sudden death because of his beautiful 90-year-old wife. And in his mind, he had to come up with a scheme or a way to save his own neck again. Even though God and his two angels who just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah delivered Lot and his two two daughters and uh, rescued uh, Abraham from that destruction, ate ate a meal with God and promised Abraham and Sarah that by faith they would have a son who would be the seed. He would still choose to go his own way. Friends, I hate to say it, but I identify with Abraham way too often. I don't know about you, but... I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I trust in his path and his plan for my life, but so often I allow my physical walk with God to be distracted by my physical circumstances, and I scheme and plow through life, choosing to do my thing and hoping God needs my precious assistance. And yet the scripture reminds us, no, My faith needs to be fully vested in God's promises, and it needs to be rooted and grounded in God's nature. And that's the introduction we see. So as we know, living life our way is hard and has devastating consequences. Living life God's way requires self-sacrifice in this temporal life, but pays exponentially in eternal dividends. So last week in chapter 20, we learned this truth. Every believer must submit to God's way to enjoy God's reward. That's what we learned last week in chapter 20. But that truth becomes solidified in Abraham's life in chapter 21. Where he wavered in chapter 20, he excels in today's narrative. But here's our clue to understand the change that just one year in his life has made. It comes in verses 33 and 34, which serve as a capstone of his actions, but a key to his heart motivation. So look back at verses 33 and 34. Did you catch it when we read it? Some of you did. Some of you were smiling because you caught it when we read it. So look at verses 33 and 34 of chapter 21. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there, called on the name of the Lord. What's the Lord's name there? Yahweh. And then he names him again, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So, after the early events of chapter 21 reveal Abraham's heart wrenching decision to trust God through Sarah's suggestion to send Ishmael and Hagar on their way. The latter events highlight the fruit of his budding faith to do things God's way and to receive God's reward. You say, how does does that showcase that, Pastor? Good question. Well, all of this active faith is displayed uh, by Abraham, is rooted in what Abraham has come to know about God's character. Yahweh, as Moses is describing him to the covenant children of Israel, described here the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Abraham calls him God the everlasting one. Why? Because God the everlasting one has plans that cannot be thwarted and his promises can be trusted. Friend, as we introduce the three points today, I wonder, do you know God, the everlasting one? Do you believe that the great I am, the covenant God that you worship, Yahweh, Jehovah, name Jesus, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, the triune entity that you and all know personally and relate to, do you know him to be everlasting? Do you know him to be eternal? Do you know him to be unchanging? Do you know his love to be fully expressed in his person? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to you. His love cannot ever improve. It will never diminish because he is unchanging. You see, Abraham finally comes to the point where his faith is showcased as rooted In the nature of the everlasting, eternal, never-changing, ever-loving, thrice-holy, covenant God of the universe. Where is your faith today? Where is my faith? You see, God's promises can never fail because God cannot change. Therefore, every believer must root their faith in God's character. The story ends with a rooted faith of Abraham and Sarah. But today, let's walk through the growth of Abraham's faith as the text reveals its progression. And we're going to see and note what we can learn from Abraham's example. So we're going to make some direct application this morning to to our lives today. It's not enough to walk through a narrative and then learn all this historical truth about it, right? We need to apply it to our lives. So I don't want you to walk out and say, I know everything about Abraham's life and I'm an Abraham scholar now. Eh, no good. I want you to be a follower of God whose life is rooted in his character. And we can learn from the example of Abraham, his failures and his successes. And so first we're gonna see faith or rooted faith planted. The first point we see is rooted faith We see that in verses 1 to 7. So let's take a look at this. Now, first and foremost, the the chapter ends with Abraham declaring to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, his covenant God. He is calling him God, the eternal or everlasting one. Okay? But notice how the text begins. I hope you saw the pattern in verses 1 to 7. In fact, I'm just going to... uh, just skim it here verse one as he had said okay as he had said as he had spoken as god had spoken to him verse two and we go on down um as god had made me laugh God had commanded him, excuse me, verse four, verse five, God made me laugh. Now notice the pattern here. God is clearly fully working in verses one to seven. The divine narrator wants to show us a pattern. God, who is declared at the end of the story to be the everlasting, eternal covenant God of Abraham and of the world, is always speaking, always working, ever living, always working his plan. And so here we find rooted faith in verses 1 to 7 is planted. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, do you remember Abraham a year ago, from this text standpoint, saw God visit with him, ate a meal with God. God declared to him specifically, I am going to give you an answer to your request. You will have a child through Sarah, not Hagar, and that child will be the answer to your prayers and the answer to my promise. Abraham had now gotten to this point after failure with Abimelech of putting his eyes on himself himself, and his own manipulations and his own machinations and his own plans and his own assistance of God Almighty. And now he is fully vested in what God has said, what God has commanded, what God has done. You see that? The narrator wants to show God said this was going to happen, God did it. Do you see it? So faith is rooted in when it's planted, or rooted faith is planted in Abraham's life here in verses 1 to 7. So in these opening verses, God makes it a point to let the reader know that these events were exactly as he said. He'd spoken, et cetera. God's promises are unbreakable. God's servants will reap a reward when they are willing to trust in God's unseen plans. And to allow their faith to be planted in his everlasting, unchangeable nature. You see, every believer must root their faith in God's character. As you think about your life, are you still in chapter 20 of your life? Are you still sort of adding your plans to God's? Are you still sort of saying, hey, well, you know, I know God's got it, but he really needs my help? Or has faith so rooted in your heart because it's been planted firmly and it's starting to take root do you believe that god the everlasting ever living unchangeable one will actually accomplish his work in your life jude the half brother of jesus says this in jude 24 he jesus is able to present you faultless before the throne of god do you believe that The author of Hebrews tells us that the reason why those men and women were able to endure the trials of their faith was because they looked, as Abraham did, for a city whose builder and maker was the Lord. Do you believe, Christian friend, do you believe that this earth is all there is? That this life, get all you can and can all you get, he who dies with the most toys wins? Is that your mantra? Is that your mentality? Well... He who dies with the most toys still dies. And after that, the judgment. So I wonder, are we like Abraham? Are we men and women who need to assist God? Are we men and women who are willing to trust God by faith? I want to highlight a couple things too. Grace is evident in all three sections here. What is God's Grace. Well, in the New Testament, we might use it as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. But what we really mean is God's grace revealed both in Old and New Testament is God not giving us what we do deserve. God, I'm sorry, God giving us what we don't deserve. I'm sorry, I was giving you the definition of mercy. (laughs) Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. God gives us his riches, his abundant grace. He pours it out lavishly. Here, God gave Sarah and Abraham what they don't deserve after 30 years of manipulating their circumstances to receive God's blessing. Now they finally yield to God's plan and they receive God's reward. Christian, God's grace showers you daily. When will you lay aside your plans and accept his? God has a plan for your life. We've got a a scripture tattooed on the wall back there. It's actually lamb, it's, you know, vinyl that we stuck on there but you know tattooed works too go therefore make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit right teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i've commanded you jesus's own words and behold i am with you always even to the end of the age what is his mission for the church his mission is for us to glorify god how do we accomplish that mission by being disciples, making disciples? We haven't said that in a long time, have we? Shall we? Who is the church? We are. What is our mission to glorify God? How do we accomplish that mission by being disciples, making disciples? It is not the job of the professional lay the professional clergy, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Stephen. To, to go out there in the highways and byways and hedges and to compel them to come in is not exclusively and narrowly the pastor's job to evangelize and disciple. If you rely just on Pastor Stephen and I, this church will never grow because we, we can't do it all. It's our job to equip you saints to do the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? To glorify God by being disciples, making disciples. So who is God placed in your life that needs a witness for Christ? Who in your family, children, or extended family need Jesus as Savior? Who in your neighborhood could use a kind and loving word and be pointed to Jesus, right? You see, God has promised us an eternal dwelling that is beyond this earth. Paul would put it this way to the Ephesian believers, eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. If we were to walk through Ephesians chapter one and two, we would find that we have incredible blessings in Jesus that in the mystery of God's matchless plan, we have been adopted into his family through his redemptive work through Jesus Christ, the son. And now we have been placed as it were in the heavenlies with all of the inheritance of all of the saints with an eternal reward and riches beyond our imagination, the richness of the eternal presence of God which we couldn't have apart from the son of God who saved us from our sins. We have an eternal home. Nobody can take that away. As Job would say in the midst of incredible suffering, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. As Job by faith would declare, "Um, I know that I will see him like he is. As Paul would say, we we look in a a mirror, the word of God, as a mirror, and we behold ourselves as in a glass from glory to glory because one day we are going to see him as he really is. As Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory and majesty, and they saw a glimpse of what the King of kings and Lord of lords will prepare for this world when he comes a second time and he sets up his earthly kingdom. that earthly kingdom will only last a thousand years because he's got a plan for eternity that is far bigger than this broken sin-cursed globe could could fit. He will make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and the gates will always be open and there will always be traffic flow into the very presence of Almighty God and the river of life will flow from his throne room and the tree of life will be on its shores and you and I will forever forever, forever dwell in his presence. Abraham understood that his faith must be rooted in the character of God's eternality. If God is not the eternal, ever-existent, always loving, unchanging God that he declares himself to be, then we've bought into a shill lie. Jesus Uh, one philosopher said, was either a liar or a lunatic, or he's God in the flesh. And of course, we know the real answer. He's God in the flesh. Abraham had the blessing of seeing the pre-incarnate Christ and eating a meal with him. Friends, we have a blessing of being indwelled By the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, which has sealed us unto the day of redemption, which has baptized us, placed us in the body of Christ, which indwells us and illumines us and helps us to understand his word and gives us the ability to say no to sin and yes to God and gives us a right standing before God because we've claimed the blood of the Son of God. Friends, we have all that we need to live for God by faith. So is your faith rooted in God today? Is your rooted faith planted on his character of unchanging love, of never-ending goodness, of total and complete mercy, of real justice that will bring his vengeance? You see, that's what happens, isn't it? We get distracted by the circumstances of life, we, saw, we see it in the life of Abraham and Sarah, the promises of God, which sound incredibly good. We don't see them happening, and so we decide to sort of manipulate our circumstances and sort of make them happen sooner rather than later, and then we step our foot in it, and we, like Peter, swallow our leg and th- stuff the other one in at the same time. And we find our lives oftentimes starting to fall apart and unravel because we've added our way to God's way. And we must remember that our faith must be properly placed. It must be rooted and grounded in God's nature, not in our methods, not in our means. God's grace that is evident here is also evident for you today. If you have trusted Christ as Savior, if you are in Christ today, you are under the immense, superabounding grace of God. And that grace is able to deliver you from all your sin. In any circumstance that you feel is separating you from God's love, and so today we must remember that our rooted faith must be planted in God's character. Secondly, we're going to find that rooted faith is germinated. Rooted faith gets germinated here in verses eight to twenty-one. Now, this is seems like a kind of a departure from the story. We now have a transition to Hagar and Ishmael, uh, and we see this happening. Um, in the text, Rooted Faith Germinated, verses 8 to 21. And so uh, I want you to note some other things here. I tried to mention it when I read it, but how many times, well, again, if you're marking your Bible, you know that the word, the name Isaac is mentioned over and over and over and over. And as we've established, and I, I added to the text for the purpose of connection and clarity, uh, the translation of the transliteration of the name Itzach or Isaac, The transliteration from Hebrew is Isaac or Itzach. The translation means laughter. So I translated it as laughter as it's transliterated as Isaac, a name, a proper name. But I don't know if you noticed in the text as we read it, um, you look down at verse 21, or excuse me, at verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that laughter was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. That is a derivative of the word Isaac, laughter. In other words, he was laughing, but he was laughing in a mocking or a scoffing way. He wasn't laughing, laughing at, at, out of joy or rejoicing. He was laughing out of bitterness and jealousy. Now, we, it's very interesting here in the text just let your eyes skim down from verses 8 to 21. Do you see the name Ishmael at all? I see some head shaking no. We know who the son is. We know his name is Ishmael. Why is he not mentioned? That's a great question to ask of the narrative. When you read narrative, why are things said and why are things unsaid? Because the emphasis of the text is on God's promise through the seed. Now, do you notice um, over and over again um, in verses 1 to 7 and in that section, over and over again, you see the word seed. You know why? Because it connects all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God is going to send a seed. Here's the seed. His name is Laughter. Laughter. It's not Ishmael. Lest there be any doubt, no perversion or pollution of the narrative, Ishmael is not the promised seed. One billion people on this planet think he is and will go to their graves, sadly, in unbelief, denial, and deceit. And I will tell you boldly, and proclaim from this pulpit, Allah is not God. Amen. He is little g, God of this world. I believe Allah is another name for Satan. And I hate to say that a billion people whose eyes are blinded on this planet and headed for a crisis eternity are worshiping Satan, but friends, that's exactly who they're worshiping. Let us not buy into the lie of ecumenism That there is one God and you can call him whatever you want. No, friends, there is one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father over all who's given us his Son, and his name is Yahweh Jesus. Amen. Praise God. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Allah and Yahweh are not the same. And, friends, I I know that sounds harsh and critical. But again, what does Abraham's life teach us? That we must root and ground our faith, and that rooted faith must be germinated in real truth. Yahweh, the everlasting God, has real and everlasting promises, and he has a singular seed. The singular seed emphasized in this story is laughter, Isaac, not Ishmael. Do not let yourself be deceived into pluralistic thinking and saying, well, it's loving for me to embrace uh, the ecumenical faiths and say, well, they're just, they just have a different name for God. No, no, their faith is placed in the wrong God. And that goes for our, quote, Protestant umbrellaed Protestant brothers and sisters uh, who are their brothers and sisters by human nature we're brothers and sisters in humanity but we are not brothers and sisters of the faith any protestant or any other religion that denies that jesus is fully god is a false religion period end of discussion now that does not mean that i don't have love and compassion and grace and mercy. That does not mean that I don't care for and pray for my self-deceived brothers and sisters who will share my same nature as humans, but I pray that God will give them a new nature and that they will recognize Jesus as Lord and they will repent and turn from their sin and turn by faith to Jesus Christ so that their faith will be rooted and grounded in the truth. It will be planted and germinated and fruitful. Because but by the grace of God, I, like Saul of Tarsus, would be zealous for self and zealous for self-righteousness. My family was on a path of self-destruction and self-religion in parochial school. And were it not for the grace of God reaching down in his mercy and calling my parents out of dead religion, I would be lost and headed for a crisis eternity. Friends, do you understand where you would be today were it not for the grace and mercy of God? We're only special because God's son is special. And we've accepted his special son. Do we see? And so as we think about this, our temptation in this portion of the narrative is to feel genuine sorrow for Hagar and Ishmael, whose name is never mentioned. Yet Ishmael's response to the laughter and rejoicing at his brother's birth and weaning is one of scorn. It's the play on words. This shows us Ishmael's heart and reveals his nature that God told Hagar earlier in her pregnancy. God's grace is evident here, though, in, prov- in provision for Hagar and Ishmael. But Abram and Sarai's poor decision, and I use their old names on purpose because there was old nature decision-making, their poor decision-making and faulty faith sowed the seeds of wayward thinking in the life of Ishmael. Although Abraham and Sarah grow in their faith and change in their ways, Hagar and Ishmael go back to Egypt. They follow a hybrid version of trust in God. Where does Hagar find a wife for Ishmael? Egypt. Where does God's people eventually get trapped in slavery? Egypt. Where does God deliver his people from? Egypt. Friends, we are to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. We are to be a distinct people saved from Egypt, not to return to Egypt. By the way, there's also a play on words. Um, Ishmael was how far away from Hagar, a bow shot? And what does he become a man of prowess with a a bow? That was free, you're welcome. So as we look at the text, the narrator does fun stuff like that to keep us engaged. As we look at the text and the story there, we also find where does Hagar and Ishmael find deliverance and God's direct answer for their restoration recovery? It's a well-located where? Beersheba, Beersheba, okay? Um, By the way, this portion of the narrative is sandwiched. It's central to the text, but I believe this portion of the narrative occurs perhaps after Beersheba becomes Abraham's. Now, it's here on purpose in this order to showcase the divine irony of God blessing all the nations of the earth through the exclusive seed. Here, his own son, Ishmael, by his own means and his own method gets a blessing because Abraham's character has ratified a covenant with the king of Israel of uh, the Philistines of Gerar, Abimelech, who owns Beersheba. But because of this covenant, Abraham plants his first homegrown tree, which shows permanency and prosperity in the land of Canaan that God promises. Though he doesn't own the land, he's made a covenant with the king and he claims this well to belong to him. And who, by divine irony, gets rescued at that well? Hagar and Ishmael, his own son. Now, again, the order of this is on purpose to showcase God's divine way and God's divine means. Isaac still blesses all the nations of the earth, and still God has a special plan for Hagar and Ishmael, but it shouldn't be lost. How many times is Be'er Sheba mentioned in the last section? And it's mentioned once in the center section because it's meant to showcase God's divine promise is going to be fulfilled, not just to Abraham, but to all the nations of the earth. By the way, Ishmael was a recipient of God's grace. The 1 billion plus Islamic human brothers and sisters around the globe can be a recipient of God's grace through his son, through his promised seed as well. Don't give up on the lost, because those lost Ishmaelites are loved by God. And God will indeed bless all the nations of the earth through his seed and Jesus Christ is offered to them as well. And I have dear friends who have been rescued out of Islam and their stories are amazing. God is still saving Ishmael today because God loves him. God loves his descendants. All right, what's the final point? Final point, we will inspect rooted faith that becomes established. Now, chapter 22, we're going to see this rooted faith that germinates and is established actually becomes fruitful. And you know what happens in chapter 22? Anybody? I know you all read ahead. You were sitting there looking. I know you were. What happens in chapter 22? Ah, the fruit of this rooted, germinated, and established faith showcases for all time, Abraham believed God. He finally began to walk by faith and not by sight. His one and only son, Isaac, he, I'm getting ahead of myself next week. His one and only son, Isaac, he brings before God in a sacrifice and he literally is willing to kill him because he believes that God could raise him from the dead because he knows that Isaac is the one and only seed physically that God will use to bless all the earth But God wants him, so he sacrifices him. I know that sounds a little radical. We'll get to it next week. But the point is this. Rooted faith gets established and becomes fruitful. Fruitful is next week. Established is today. So let's finish our text. Rooted faith established, verses 22 through 34. As we look at this text, we're reminded that our temptation, excuse me, that Abraham's last encounter with Abimelech was a failure, right? Mentioned that already. Here, Abraham's germinated faith is so established that he takes the lead in righteousness. Remember, who is the righteous one in chapter 20? Abimelech. (laughs) He's got to go to Abraham and say, God just met with me in a dream, buddy. This woman is your wife. What is wrong with you, man? (laughs) That's in the divine, you know, in inspired Hebrew, you know. No, I'm kidding. That was my (laughs) paraphrase. (laughs) And uh, Abimelech's the righteous one in this passage, but now Abraham takes the lead. Why? Because Abraham finally has his faith planted, rooted, germinated, and established on the nature and character of of the immutable, unchangeable, everlasting God. He's no longer looking through the eyes of physical flesh, but he's looking through the eyes of faith at God's real promises that are yet future. So uh, Abraham's germinated faith is established. He resolves a conflict over a well. He makes a covenant with Abimelech and then displays a physical manifestation of his established faith. He plants a tree. He calls God by a new name, everlasting one, and then plants this tree, which shows permanence and prosperity. By the way, there's only one other time in the text that it comes up later in chapter 25, one other time that Abraham shows possession or ownership in Canaan. And it's when he buys the cave of Machpelah to bury his beloved wife, Sarah. So here the text tells us at Beersheba, he plants a tree to showcase permanence and prosperity. And by the way, Beersheba will be important later on. No spoilers, I'll let you read ahead, okay? Beersheba will be important later on. So uh, uh, Abraham's display of established faith highlights his growth in trusting God for the unseen to receive real reward. And what is the kernel of truth that you and I must believe today? How does it apply to us? Well, every believer must root their faith in God's character. Every believer must root their faith in God's character. You see, when I know that my eternal, everlasting, all-loving, all-merciful, great and gracious, eternal God loves me and has a plan for my life, when I stop living by sight and I start living by faith, I connect my story to God's story and everything that I do here on earth lines up for God's glory and goodness. I can be a disciple who makes disciples. I can speak redemptive relationships. I can speak the love and hope of God. And God can do the germinating work of faith in somebody's heart that I can't do. My story connects with God's story because I walk by faith and not by sight. My decisions, practically speaking, how do I spend my money? Where should I spend my time? What should I do on this planet Earth in the temporary time that God has allotted me? My decisions become informed, not by sight, but by faith. But they get connected, not with this temporal existence here on earth and my earthly pleasures, but they get connected with God's glory and God's glorious plan. It transforms my thinking. And like Abraham, I look for a city whose builder and maker is the Lord. And so, in conclusion today, we saw the progress of Abraham's planted faith that took root in his heart. It germinated in his decision-making, and it became established as his family pattern. Even the heart-wrenching decision to trust God through Sarah's request to dismiss his son Ishmael did not diminish his trust in God's promises. And the narrative tells us that because of his righteous stance before God and his covenant with Abimelech, he actually rescues his own son, doesn't even know it. At Beersheba, a well that he establishes, God saves Ishmael and Hagar. God's grace in fulfillment, kernelized, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Isaac because all the nations of the earth will see their son, the son, the seed, Jesus. Abraham finally finally trusted in God, the everlasting one, whose plans cannot be thwarted and whose promises can be trusted. Just like God's fulfilled promise planted faith in Abraham's life, which germinated in his decision-making and finally established a lifelong pattern of trust that will yield eternal fruit. So you and I must trust God by faith today. He wants to strengthen your faith in him as you rely on his everlasting nature, as you root your faith in God today. His promises cannot fail Because he cannot change. Every believer must root their faith in God's character. Are you ready to do that today? Are you renewing that today? Are you receiving God's grace and love today? Are you connecting to God's story today? Do you know God's goodness today? Will you be willing to sacrifice today the pleasures that are temporary for the eternal joys of tomorrow? Are you willing to invest today in the lives of people that hate God or ungodly and reject God just to see the germinating fruit and root take a hold of an unsaved person and gloriously see them transformed by the power of Almighty God? Are you willing to be a disciple who's making disciples? Will you invest your life by faith? so that God will grant you his reward. Father, we-